Hi there, and thanks for listening to Shim Satira's podcast series, Sounds Like Folk. My name is Joanne Barry, and I am the Repertory Director with the National Folk Theatre at Shim Satira. My involvement with Shimsa began as a nine-year-old child and I've been working with the company as a performer, teacher and all-round folky for the last 15 years. Despite the current restrictions, the creative impulse to swap our stories and engage with our audiences remains. I hope you enjoy this new way of Bohan Tiacht, or gathering together, allowing a window into Shimsa Tira, which itself was born from a coming together of like-minded people a place where ideas and stories are celebrated. Today, I am delighted to chat to Little John Nee, a new friend and associate artist with Shimsa. Little John is a writer and performer based in County Galway. His style of storytelling theatre with music has won him international recognition. He was elected to Aestana in recognition of his contribution to Irish culture in 2016. His most recent collaboration with Laura Sheehan, a filmic stage hybrid, Drone Bone Jetty, premiered at the Galway Theatre Festival this year. Enjoy the chat. Little John Lee is joining me from Galway, correct? That's correct, yeah, Tum. Tum, County Galway. Great stuff. Um, Kalalunti, Tum, County Galway. Oh, just to be just to be right, yeah. Um, Little John is a just to get your all your titles in. You're a writer, a performer, a storyteller, and a musician. And you are also part of Sheems's Associate Artist Program, which is wonderful. Yeah. I think you were one of the first, actually. And I remember um, when Roisin said that it, you were going to join, I was like, oh, this this is a perfect, uh, a perfect marriage. You've always been on my radar as that kind of um, folk performer, if you know what I mean. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, but I'd love to go back, John, to start, go back to kind of where, where all this artistry came from and where you where it all began for you. Um, yeah, well, I was born in Glasgow of Donegal parents. Okay. Uh, both my parents were from Donegal, and the, the community was largely Donegal. Yes. You know, we'd be walking down the street, and my mother would bump into a woman, and he'd spend half an hour in the street talking about home, okay. you know. Yeah. And I we live up the road, and but yeah. home was always home, you know. Yeah. And in the summer, we'd head home to Donegal, and the songs about home were all about Donegal as well, you know. So that was in, in our school in Glasgow as well. It was uh, like I can remember the roll call, and like at least 50% of the roll call is um, Donegal, okay. you know, yeah. Donegal. Yeah. There was a fella called O'Malley, and they weren't from Donegal, they were Irish ancestry, but they weren't Donegal, and it seemed really weird, you know. Like yeah, yeah, where did you come from? Yeah, yeah. Exotic. <laughs> from another part of Ireland, you know. Yeah. Um, so there was that, and so culturally that was, you know, like, and I went to Charlie Kelly's dancing classes when I was a young fella, yeah. uh, which was another ooh, cultural phenomenon, you know, like it was down in this place, we'd have to get two buses to get there, and it'd be a Sunday, and I think it was really an excuse for all of these Donegal, mostly women, mothers, bringing their kids so that they could stand and gossip, you know? Yeah. And, um, and and I'm talking about five and six year, you know, like that I was, you know, and there was these wee Glasgow um, boys, you know, the girls seemed to take more to it, but the boys, you know, were street boys. Everybody was in the streets in those days kind of thing, you know, that was your, so like these wee Glasgow street boys, 
doing Irish dancing and we didn't want to be doing any dancing, you know. So we used to go into the toilets and eat soap. So we get to do it. Um, yeah, and I just thinking about this because I knew I was doing the podcast with you. I think one of the most influential pieces with me, like I would, I love storytelling. That's why I love folk because story is so much part. It is integral. It's what folk is. You know, it is, um, and and how that humor and pathos and all those things are captured. And it, you know, um, and there was a a, a a song my father sung called Daft Sandy, and it was by a music hall performer mm. called Will Fife, who was, as the name suggests, Scottish. You know, but my father had got the record for, with his brother in a, an old seventy-eight back in Donegal. That's where he'd learnt it in Donegal, mm. um, and it was one of those story recitations. It was humorous and it was pointed all these things. You know. I think that was one of the most profound experiences in my life. No, I look back at that, I think, well, that's basically still what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, yeah. I remember the magic of hearing my father doing it. Yeah. yeah. And that sort of, that kind of, you know, rhythm and, and stuff that stays with you, you know, from when, when you're a child, all that's yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, I subsequently I found a recording of it and gave that to my father before he died. And, that, and um, it's very different, you know, and the way I remember it better is yeah. my father's inflections. Yes. I don't know what he could have gotten from his brother George used to do it as well, you know. Yeah. My brother has, my uncle George was a a local singer. You know, he didn't sing professionally, but yeah. he would always be asked to sing and he'd have a great selection of songs and, yeah. and stories. Yeah. And did you, was it always going to be this for you I mean when you were growing up and listening to all this cultural you know both in Scotland and Ireland I suppose there's so much it's so rich was that always going to be the path yeah I, I mean I didn't know there was any path at, at the you know like I was going to grow up I was going to go and fight in a war and uh, become a hero and then get married that's my earliest memory is going to come get married and then come back to Donegal and build a house in the field opposite my auntie Minnie's Okay. Oh. Happy ever after. Animals, you know, and so that was the main plan. Yeah. There was also it was the sixties, and it was in Glasgow. So you had the Beatles. You had all these other cultural influences as well, and uh, and I took, you know, I remember the first songs I started writing. I was six and seven. Well, before that, obviously, because I think little children, most little kids, will write songs off the top of their heads. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, that's, I think that, that's who we should learn songwriting from. Really, yes, yeah. you know, is yeah, better tune in your head, and I'm going to pick my nose, and uh, you know, and it's like there you go. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, and um, so I, I wrote songs at school, and I was really influenced by a Frank Sinatra film. I remember that's where I'd respond to things that were in television, or I'd go away and respond to by writing a song or something like that. Okay. So we'd play again. Um, and we had a great record collection in our house as well, which was between mixture of country and Irish, Irish ballads, and you know, okay. and country and western, Patsy Cline, Jim Rees, yeah. all those. You know? yeah. yeah. And how did you end up? Um, so you started writing songs, and music is where um, it started. Yeah. yeah. When I went to went to um, back, we moved back to Donegal to to live again when I just turned twelve, and immediately started playing in local bands, mm. and. Uh, that's another great love that I'm getting back into is yeah. I'm talking to you from a garage. 
Well, the thing was that when we were kids, like from 12 up, I was playing in garage bands. And I just love that, you know, because I get into a bit of trouble subsequently throughout my teenage years. And um, I was saying the most innocent, purest times was, you know, like four boys in a garage. And like you had to be, we, we, honestly, we didn't own a garage. We had to ask parents and neighbours and things to use garages. So yeah. there's several garages in the old town area of Letterkenny that I know. But, and it was single breeze blocks. They were freezing. Nobody made warm garages in those days. No, no. Freezing cold in the 19th, early 1970s. And we'd gather there in November and um, we'd have an amplifier to, you know, and maybe a bit of a drum kit. And uh, we'd play these songs and Brilliant. murder them. And it was beautiful. It was just the best times ever, you know. So that's when I decided that yeah. my real joy would be to be a singer, a blues singer. And um, and a writer as well is very much into poetry and things. But there was no talk of the arts in those days. Sure. At school, you, we didn't even have an art class until I was in fourth year, something like that. Okay. But obviously, you had poetry and <clears throat> literature were yeah. an integral part of the curriculum, you know. Yeah. So you can't escape Patrick Kavanagh. I you know, know. It was like you might have this rather rigid, unimaginative curriculum, but in the midst of that, you've got Brendan Behan, <laughs> you know, Patrick Kavanagh's short stories, and you think, wow. So that obviously set me on fire. Yeah. And um, yes. You know, you talk about the music and the writing and I think that I can so relate to being like in a garage and dreaming, you know, playing your playing your instruments and dreaming about where it's going to take you. And I, I looking back over all your work as well, there's a lot of stuff that you yourself wrote for yourself. You know, there's yeah. a lot of a lot of really, you know, intimate and great, mad, fantastical stories about characters. And it seems to me, I could be wrong, that this character, your your work is so character driven, regardless of um, the format almost. Right, yes, yeah, that's, well, oh, thank you, that's really good. Uh, one thing that really struck with me one time I heard was, it was a description um, Pat McCabe said about his characters. He says, he winds them up, and then he puts them down on the floor and sees where they'll go. There you go. Lovely. Sometimes I feel like that as well. So I feel sometimes, like, just as you mentioned, the character-driven, there's things sometimes you do all this, lot, the hard work for me, the hard work at the beginning, the story, and maybe scrapping that version, and eventually these characters emerge, mm. you know, and uh, then that's it. They take over the story, and then I'm surprised by where they're going, you know, and yeah. that's, the, that's the real joy of it is, like, and the dairy boat, the, the grandfather comes into the little boy's room at two o'clock in the morning. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I don't know if I can handle this, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you know I, this isn't where the story's supposed to be going kind of thing, you know. No. And uh, but the granddad takes the little boy out into the streets on an adventure, you know. And, um, yeah, so there's things like that. Is But that's, yeah, I love that unfolding of a story from characters, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The inevitability, the way that you don't have an option, they're going to do what they want to do. And it's just, it's its its already written. Yes, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, just from a very practical point of view, when you are writing, are you are you writing everything? Are you writing what's happening? Are you writing script? And are you, are you um, kind of, as you said, stripping back? But is everything sort of going onto the page first and then all this editing going on? Or do you yeah. Out? yeah, yeah. No, I, I at the at the start everything goes down, and obviously the 
some unconscious editing going on, but it's yeah, it's I try to be as yeah, try to find the story in there and see what it is and things that appeal to me. I mean, uh, drone bone jetties began with a man on a jetty. Okay. And it felt so right, just that image. Yeah. And you know, I had bits of the the story was already emerged before that, but it was um it was very much a feeling of yeah, this is right. This is the right place. Someone waiting for a boat and waiting for the tides to rise. Just that notion of waiting for the tide to rise. And then gradually as the story developed, there's so many parts of that story that are lost or don't exist anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, layers and layers uh, that inform the story, obviously, and, and start, inform the characters, like the backstory of the characters and that. But um, yeah, they get edited down. Mm. And that story, the man on the jetty and this idea of waiting, was that, did that come to you before this whole crazy madness of pandemic and COVID? And, you know, because there's such a, it just, when I was watching it, it, it was just, it, it felt so appropriate for the time we're in, you know? Yeah, um, but I, I don't know. Basically, it began when I finished the show, myself and Laura Sheeran, who I collaborate with, um, one of the great joys of my life is being able to collaborate with Laura every now and then. So in 2017, we'd done a show, Radio Rosario. Mm. They had a very short run at running uh, the McLally Theatre in Druid, and it was in Dublin Theatre Festival, Axis Ballymun. Okay. And just that word, it was set in the future. So yeah. that futuristic world um, was a really interesting place to inhabit. Yeah. And so when that finished, I thought, oh, it'd be lovely to do a trilogy. Mm -hmm. and so the trilogy began and uh one of the titles was going to be all the small oceans which i think i'll reclaim that title for a project another project but it was called all the small ocean and it was going to be about that thing about being at the edge of the ocean and seeing the connectedness of everything mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and then the partner piece was going to be called loving mm. and okay. loving was going to be an urban version of you know of the future and about artists as well beyond where the, about artists being commodified mm. and the commodification of art yeah. in general and that was going to be you know the value of art you know and then the two became one but mm. uh, get turned down for funding as is the way you know like we all experience that so get turned down for funding and when you get turned down for funding you can't reapply you know, so it makes it more, it gets more difficult, uh, but the show wouldn't go away, you know. Mm. And unfortunately, uh, Galway County Council uh, um, commissioned me to, to write the script. Brilliant. And uh, so it, it evolved over over a lot of time. So that's years, isn't it? And it became my pick. I knew that I had to make it, mm. but um, I didn't know how I was going to make it. And I was going, to, I turned out then I was going to make it into a radio play because I just have to manifest it in some form yeah. to be free from it in a sense. Yeah, 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 absolutely. To allow me to move on. And then I brought, I let Laura here because I thought she could do some music on the radio play, maybe, you know, to help me collaborate in some way. And she says, no, we have to make a stage play. Mm. <laughs> and it was at that point that um, uh, seems to take, I was also doing a residency this year with some on Greenham Theatre and Town Hall Galway. And so I incorporated it into that program. And then CMSA came along and like with this associate artist scheme, I allowed myself and Laura to begin work in the latter half of last year. 
Because yeah. uh, Laura is also on our associate artist program as well. And yeah. uh, yeah. do work with yourself and other work. Um, do you prefer to collaborate, John, or or like will you have you always collaborated with other artists, or do you like to make work on your own? Um, I, I, I mean, I like to. Well, I like to be always kind of working. So I, I really enjoy the process of being in my own creating. Yeah. Um, but uh, I love collaborating as well. I think there comes a point when it's just really nice to collaborate on a project. You know, and for myself, um, just when you were talking about how it, that when my shows, a lot of my shows are, are solo shows and that, I think I think that came about from around leaving cert. The band that I was playing in, they all stopped playing because they, they had to do their leaving cert. <laughs> for me, I was a year younger or something. For me, it, there was no choice. Like, yeah. I wasn't going to go that career path anyway. I just didn't know how I was going to do it. But so there became that sense of, oh, when the band breaks up or when the band does something, you're on your own again. Mm. So there was that element of having to generate your own work and inspired by uh, poets like Linton Kwesi Johnson and John Cooper Clark, performance poets like this. Mm. Um, later, it was Eamon Kelly. You know, yes. the, the power yes. of entertainment and creativity and vision that they could uh, conjure up really inspired me. So that's one thing about working alone. But I find that there's a collaboration is always involved, even if it's myself. Like, even as I just remember the last time I came to Siemsa, it was with a show called Small Halls and Potholes, mm -hmm. which is basically me driving around the country with all my instruments and I tell a, a, a kind of kaleidoscope of stories, you know. Yeah. And, and I just love being with the techies. So there's always that collaboration. You arrive and um, we had a hired, uh, sorry, I can't remember his name, but we, we hired in a sound guy for the day. And he's telling me, oh, why don't you try it like that? So you're getting the, the, the creativity. I love, like that really inspires me is the creativity of the technical staff of theatres. Yes. You know, um, that's a collaboration from the start, from the minute you arrive in, you know. And also you can see that you're collaborating with the front of house staff and with everyone in the venue, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but as you say, like with other artists, I particularly like work with Laura Sheeran. Mm. And then there's a few musicians in Donegal that I've been collaborating with over the, the years. And it is really rich as well, you know. Yeah. It's uh, And you don't yeah. know, it's yeah. so many like 10 years that you've been working together, you know. I know, I know. And another another connection with Tralee is um, Johnny Patterson. But I remember hearing the connection that Johnny Patterson is actually buried in Tralee. Is that correct? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. We started the Johnny Patterson. Well, we, we, the first show was in Carlo, in the George Bernard Shaw Theatre, and then we started the national tours. Started in Tralee. Okay. And uh, so we started off with a visit to try to find his grave, and he was buried in Tralee. Um, a doctor, I think, gave him a grave. A friend gave him a grave because apparently the church weren't keen on him being buried in a, yes. in a grave because he was uh, a sinner, I think. Yeah, um, that's right. I remember reading about him, and yeah. I think it's a really old graveyard as well, sort of over on on like yeah. the manor side of town, we'll call it. Yeah, there's a plaque now, kind of thing, but I think for a long while it was unmarked. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a plaque in the wall, but yeah. So I mean, that brought a beautiful, amazing story. Unbelievable. What an incredible story about a boy who is orphaned by the age of four uh, during the famine, lives with his uncle in Ennis who's a nail maker, not even a blacksmith, a nail maker. Nail makers used to make all the nails by hand. And as I was doing the research, things that don't make into the show, I remember that one of the striking things about the research was there were nail maker riots in England <laughs> wow. because 
because when later on, because when America, after the Boston Tea Party, they weren't taking, they were being forced to get their nails from England <laughs> prior to the Boston Tea Party. So I mean, America, and America used a lot of nails in the days of the wooden cabins kind of thing, you know? Okay. So all of a sudden, when they stopped making nails, um, getting their nails from England, there was all these unemployed, and it was very poor people, you know, who had a very basic um, forge kind of thing. So he was born to that, joined out the British Army, um, and most of his regiment fought in Crimea. Yeah. And he used to play in little circuses, kind of nixers, making a bit of money, bought his way out of the, the army mm-hmm. and uh, played music with circuses, done a variety, not a, uh, a benefit concert. He um, done a bit, he clowned, he became, he showed off some of his clown skills and he was recognized and asked to be a clown. Then was discovered by Pablo Fanke. Mm-hmm who was mentioned in the Beatles song for the benefit of Mr. K. And yes. I just found this incredible, you know, so he became a pop star of his time yeah. Yeah. In, uh, in America, you know, and um, and the fact that when we were doing that show, people knew the songs, you know? Yeah, yeah. The people would be singing, and as most people might have heard, maybe younger people might not have heard of, you know, like the stone outside Dan Murphy's door, you know, and, Oh, I met him in the garden where the pretties grow, or met her in the garden. All those, all these old songs, you know, yeah. and um, a whole like, yeah, for well, an awful lot of songs that are remembered, yeah. Um, yeah. and beautiful melodies and the words, and they're very. People would be embarrassed by them now, I think, because of the cloying um, sentimentality of it. Okay. As I'd done the research, it really struck me. Was you're talking about the five points in New York? You're talking about this is famine, just post famine times. So you're talking about the ghettos of the world, do you know, British ghettos. Do you know, just at the time of mass immigration from Ireland, you've got these ghettos all over the world where they are the most brutal places on the planet, possibly, you know, um, and uh, in the major cities of the world. Um, and in the midst of this, you've got these songs, and it became really obvious that might be the only tenderness in their life might exist in these songs. So that's why you've got some big six foot fellow with hands like shovels who'd tear the head off you, crying yeah. at a sentimental song about, you know, goodbye, Johnny dear, and when you're far away, don't forget your dear old mother who's far across the sea, you know? And, um, you know, like. So amazing. Yeah. So amazing as an image, you know, just such a contrast. And then he was killed in, um, in Tralee, um, at the Sarks in Tralee, where um, he, he was famous for, he, he had a costume with a crown and a harp on it. And then there's a story that it was a, he had two flags, one with a crown and one with a harp. And but so different versions of the story, obviously. But I mean, apparently, what happened, and there was lots of faction fights. And it was the time of Home Rule was being was being introduced, it was being the notion of home rule was coming up and uh and that and so there was great tension in the country and uh he sung a song about do your best for one another mm. uh kind of peace song yeah. and uh and a fight broke out and allegedly he was hit by an iron bar oh and God. brought to the hospital where he died you know because you're making you've been make, making work for a while uh, have you had a moment that's challenged you, we'll say, the most over all the years where you've thought, OK, this is a kind of a fork in the road or this is this is pivotal, you know? Right. Um, 
challenging. This show was pretty challenging. The Throne Bone Jetty, yes. uh, you know that that point where we thought we'd make a theatre show. Yeah. And we began to, you know, like I had the script and we began to adapt the script and we began to rehearse in this garage where I am now. When I say we began to rehearse, we had the laptop set up with Laura facing the stage, talking to me as I stood in the stage. Yeah. And I had to do all the technical aspects as well. So you get no stage match. So it was, that was quite frustrating at the start. Yes. And then we found out is that actually you're not going to be able to play to any the theatres won't be opening after Christmas. You find out, like, yeah, you're not going to be in a theatre with a full audience. So you think, okay, we might get in with 50 people and we'll live stream it as well. Yeah. And then you find out, no, you won't be playing to any people at all. The theatres won't be open. So that's when we got. So, and so just all the changes of what are we making here? Yeah. yeah. And I think that comes across and what is it? What is this that we have made? And basically it comes because we didn't really know what we were making at the time. All we knew was we had to tell the story. Yes, yes. And, uh, and we were very determined about that. But it was, it was really a struggle to, to do it in lockdown. Yeah. You know, um, with, yeah, minimal resources and minimal people around, you know, and, and not being allowed to travel. Just, yeah. you know, we got a window that we're allowed to, tra to film in Connemara for a week. Yeah. And, yeah, it was just, it was so that was difficult. But I was thinking probably more difficult would be situations where you're not happy with what you were working, you know, like when you're doing work that you're not happy and you're, you make that decision, I never want to do this yeah. again. You know, yeah. those, but they're very formative. And and I was in England during Brexit work and, and I found that difficult because, because of the antagonism towards Europeans. <laughs> And it reminded me of when I went to London when I was 17, working at building sites, and that same animosity towards the Irish, you know, that was in yeah. the, the 1970s. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of, I was, there was a lot of warmth and, and welcome and very, felt very safe and secure and generosity and all the, the beauty of um, the English people and, and, and the freedom of being there. But at the same time, that thing in the air that, yeah. you know, that, that's... Brexit that was there in the, the 60s, 70s was always there, you know, it was always that, yeah. that um, horrible thing. And it exists in every country, I know. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd love to just talk, um, just to kind of round up the Drone Bone Jetty uh, project and your work with Shimsa and this pandemic. Has there been positives from this pause? You know, I, I call it the pandemic pause, you know, where we've all had to kind of stop and say, okay, what am I going to do next? Because for me, we were just chatting at the start. Drone Bone Jetty is, even though it's a film piece and it came out of, um, it kind of has done a circle. It came from a theatre piece into a film piece. But for me, it's very theatrical. But has the pause offered you um, as an artist, I suppose, and as a writer and as obviously a thinker and someone who uses their imagination so much to create work? Has it offered you positives uh, over the last year, year and a bit? So many positives in the sense is uh, helped impair my independence. Yeah. Think, yeah, okay, what can you do when you're in your garage? <laughs> how can you stuff and how can you connect with people? So I've refined some skills um, in that area, you know, it's, and I've done a, a, a radio play this year as well, you know. Uh, so there's a lot, like I worked pretty much through the pandemic and yeah. um, that, um, but it, as part of the overall 
narrative of the year. As you know, I'm doing a, another show that will be, be uh, featured, and I think I'll call that All the Small Ocean because all the small ocean, because it's about the Atlantic seaboard as well. And because I was new doing, knew I was doing this, I kind of thought of situations about when I used to ramble around Buskin and Charlie Chaplin and, and do street shows, and I wanted to be a clown, and, and, and I, I was a clown. But I'd end up in Milltown Malby. Yeah, playing you know, music. And I was just thinking, that's what I loved about the, the, the folk aspect, but was that there might be some famous session with Ian and the place would be packed out in Milltown. And then you'd end up and you'd end up in this little pub in the corner. There'd be nobody in it, you know? Yeah. yeah. And next thing, somebody'd come in and they'd start playing and another person. And then before you knew it, you knew that you were at the most sublime session in the world. And there might only be seven people listening to it. Yeah. Yeah. And you knew, and you know, and it might and you might later find out that it was a very famous musicians yeah. were playing. But at the time all you knew, oh that's Dave, you know that Dave, Dave, Dave plays, he plays just a great piper, isn't he? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you thought you find out later, all right, okay, you know. But they might not be, and it might be one of the greatest pipers in the world. And along with that, there's a child on a fiddle, do you know? Or a baron. And it's still that it has a sublime moment. And you know that that's passing, you know that it's like Zen, it's like haiku. It happened, only five people, there's a tree in the forest. We saw it happen. We know that this was the best session. And then, you know, the word might get out and half an hour later, there's 50 people in that pub and it's rare, it's on fire, but it's still not as sublime as it was yeah. half an hour before. So, yeah, so um, what I've learned is that air in the room thing we were talking about, I'm just dying. I mean, I did do a little tour last year uh, in the Aerial Arts Festival. I got out to do an open air tour. So. Um, Oh, the beauty of being in it with an audience, of looking in people's eyes, of hearing them laugh and they're only 10 feet away, you know, or five feet away, yeah. and um, and feeling the audience. Yeah. You know, you, you feel the audience, you feel the, the ebbs and flows, and, and you feel them engaging with a story. Yeah. Um, and this story now is, uh, Eamon Kelly's going to be a big part of it. I don't know if that'll be visible at all, if people even notice that. Yeah. But, um, because he's a big part of my stories anyway. I love about him as well. It's like traditionally, I wouldn't be big into Finn McCool stories or you know or Greek myths or anything. I love stories about buying butter, yeah. and that's what I love about him. I love those you know and the Taylor Nancy kind of stories as well. You know, I just love those. It's about ordinary people and the profundity of you know it's, it's that Patrick Kavanagh again. Gods make their own importance. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. like it's all happening here at the crossroads, yeah, you know, yeah. and in that's the, what I'm looking forward to again. In the smaller moments almost, which I think yeah. is where a lot of your work is really relatable and, you know, it's moving and because it's those, it's not the big sort of flashbang, you know, um, maybe reams of rhyming text, It's it's which are beautiful as well and they bring you to that place, but it's the smaller, almost intimate kind of moments, as you say, that you can share with an audience. There's nothing like that. Um, and I think when you're, is it is it different? I'm not sure, but is it different when you're a solo performer? You have such a, I guess you have such a um, connection with your audience because it's it's only you that they're watching as well. You know, they don't have to worry about other other actors or. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 there is that 
He's definitely. I have to just when you said soul form, I thought I play with um, Jeremy uh, Howard and Donny Gall and uh, Finn Robinson. We mm. do shows together with a show called Tea Dance. Okay. And, uh, and uh, it's funny because there's nothing more sublime as when it's three people playing as one in the story as well, you know. Yeah. And um, so yeah, so it's there is that thing, but it's it's really nice when you're working with other people and yeah like I say simply three people as one you know telling a story and it's yeah, yeah. the sensitivity of playing together you don't have that with everybody but just that sensitivity of communication between you you know um mm -hmm. and the way that Jeremy is really nice sometimes with very sparse notes okay. and with the right notes you know they're yeah. just <laughs> the word knows those notes only Jeremy and he plays them at the right time yeah. and and the audience might not even you know, like they don't know what's happening, but it's happening. When we've done the dairy boat, which yeah. I love about theatre, because your greatest, the greatest gift you're you're given as a performer in a, a theatre, um, I suppose not, is the imagination of the audience. That is, you know, it's that's it. And when we done the dairy boat years ago, uh God, is it 20, 30 years? 30 years ago, no, 20, 20 years ago, um, over 20 years ago. But Derry Boat was the boat that brought people from Donegal to Glasgow. Yes. And um, so it's big in the myths to, of, of the people and everybody knows it. Uh, so when I called, when called, the show was called The Derry Boat, it brought people out of the woodwork. People had never been to theatre at all, you know. And this woman came and she was in her 80s and it was downstairs in the library, Letterkenny, the old library, the art centre, you know. It was very low ceiling and everything. I jammed and this woman says I brought my mother she saw the poster and she says what does he know about the dairy boat I was on the dairy boat <laughs> she was kind of nearly coming to prove me wrong <laughs> you know I know more about the dairy boat than anybody so anyway um this woman told me this but then after because the older woman came up and she says oh god you know that was just the way I remember it she's and the bit about the sheep Oh. And there was no sheep in the show, do you know. Oh, there was. It was a small bit about sheep in a lorry, but not the bit she was talking about. She dumped the sheep in the boat, and I was thinking, wow. She painted. God knows what picture was in her mind that she had painted yeah. by herself. And that thing is one of the things that was. And it's the Eamon Kelly thing that I got from Eamon Kelly was he allowed me to imagine this incredible world, you know. Fabulous. And uh, yeah. yeah, so that's that's the the, the thing I, I love, I suppose, about folk in that sense is that. The space that allows you the space to be uh, cosmic. She stands up, looking out the window. He sat shamed, looking into the fire. And that's in a House in Glasgow Far from here Is her heart's desire I don't care about The punches and bruises I don't care about the pain I 
with the Highly Strung Orchestra, uh, Caledonia Highly Strung Orchestra, which is the people that I've mentioned, Jeremy and Finn, yeah. and also a, an amazing musician, uh, um, Orla Gilchrist as well, and Orla sings in this track. Um, so that was another pivotal moment, the making of the first album when I was, it was in my later years. But you know, that's what I wanted to do when I was 17. When I came back from London, I wanted to do poetry in the street because I seen people doing robotics and mime on Covent Garden. So I thought maybe I can do my poems on the street. I've been doing them in alternative cabaret in England. Yeah. I didn't have any idea. So I went to Dame Street and started busking. The traffic everywhere. It was the stupidest place anyone ever busked. Nobody would stop. There wasn't room for people. It was just absurd. And then this little traveler girl stopped and she was maybe about 10 and she stopped and listened to me and she put toppings into my hat when I finished. And then she listened to the next one. And every time I'd finish one, she put more money in the hat, just coppers, you know, mm -hmm. but she was, I had somebody to perform for mm -hmm. and she was listening. I was doing beat poetry. I don't know what she heard. <laughs> you know, I was talking about beatniks up trees and things like that, but she was engaged and she stayed and she was present. Wow. And so while she held me and that, I was content, a woman who was a street trader came up and says, listen, you're stupid busking doing it there. Go up to Henry Street. 
this is before Grafton Street was even yes. there. Okay. I went up to Henry Street and I got a huge crowd. And that began my whole street performance career, which led to Children's Day, which led to lots of things. But it all was based on that one little girl stopped, you know, that one little traveler girl. And there was one guy, the guy, the person who gave me encouragement over the years, there's people like Brush Shields, who's come to Donegal, he'd always be encouraging. And uh, there's a guy, David Rappaport, who I don't know if it's appropriate to mention here if there's time to it, but he's uh, a, a little person. Um, he was um, what, the leader of the, the Time Bandits, you know, the Time Bandits. Oh, yeah. And the seven little guys, and yeah, yeah. he was the leader. Um, and he was an amazing performer in London. He'd play 100,000 people at CND rallies, you know, like he'd mm. MC them. Incredible performer, mind blowing. And at the local alternative cabaret in Dawson Junction, I'd done my poetry with a white face and a costume. And he came up to me twice and he says, That was really amazing. He says, Please keep doing it. And then he came back and he said it again. He says, What you're doing is very special. Please keep doing it. And, um, that just kept me going through dark times. Even today, you just think, yeah, because he subsequently um, killed himself in the States. You know, he became a huge success in films in the States now. And he, um, yeah, he wasn't. So I just, I think of people like that who encouraged me, you know. Yeah, and holding on to those moments, lovely. Yeah. That's gorgeous. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank, Thank you. And I, I really look forward to having to, having actual real conversation in person yeah. and best of luck with all the work and Thank again you. huge congrats on drone bone jetty i hope lots of people see it it's it's a beautiful oh. theatrical mysterious uh woven yeah it's gorgeous oh, and thanks very much for this as well and for everything i really appreciate it not at all not at all and i'll talk to you soon hopefully okay okay great bye thanks take care Thanks for listening to our podcast, which was edited by Tom Hannafin. For further information on Little John Lee's work, go to www.littlejohnlee.com and social media platforms. The track you heard as part of our chat is Punches and Bruises by Little John Lee and the Caledonia Highly Strung Orchestra. To find out more about Shimsa and our new and upcoming work, head over to our website www.shimsatira.com You will also find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, bye bye.